Had It Past Podcast 2020 coming to you live from the middle of downtown Doha. My name is Neil Morrison and uh, we're here with an uh, action-packed episode from the first round of a rather strange, intriguing and uh, quite surprising uh, MotoGP race which actually featured no MotoGP at all in uh, the uh, Gulf state of Qatar. But uh, an interesting weekend it was, no less. I'm joined by the uh, affable Mr. David Emmett of Motomatters.com. Hi, David. How are you? Um, well, probably like you, absolutely uh, tired and confused. <laughs> yes, it's the Monday after uh, the race weekend. That is the kind of standard default setting for uh, all journalists and media types. I'm sure it's the same for riders and team personnel. After a pretty intensive weekend, there I was naively thinking, no MotoGP. Everything's going to be nice and relaxed and easy. And, uh, well, we get to, well, midnight on Sunday and uh, everything's just... Uh, out of control as per usual. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. On Saturday night, I was trying to write my report, and uh, literally about every hour there was some, uh, some more news breaking about um, uh, the our littlest friend, the coronavirus. Yeah, this was uh, possibly going to be called the WTF is happening podcast uh, or edition of the Paddock Pass podcast because, uh, well. I mean, to be quite frank, we don't really know when there's going to be a next race. We've had the first round of the season. Thailand has obviously been postponed for later this month in March. Um, we have to say that Austin is looking more and more unlikely to happen as the hours pass. Um, what we saw over the weekend was uh, Texas declaring a state of emergency. Uh, we also saw the South by Southwest Music Festival being cancelled later this month. Um, and then there was the news that Italy is going to... Uh, well, basically keep 14 million members of its population in lockdown um, and uh, make sure that they don't travel away from their, their other towns or their cities um, up until the 3rd of April. And the Austin GP is to get underway on the 3rd of April. Well, yeah, that's right. FP1 is the 3rd of April, so um, it would have to be quite a fast flight. So what's going on in the world of MotoGP? I mean, are we looking at no MotoGP this year? Is that... Well, what we know for certain is that the uh, tie round has been postponed until the uh, 4th of uh, October and the Aragon round has been moved up until the 26th of September, uh, Twenty, sorry, the 27th of September, I think, um, which is a week before that, much to the delight of the uh, Dorna TV guys who have to strip all of the cables um and it's it's hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of cables that they uh, that they need to actually do uh, make the broadcast. Um, strip all of the cables on Sunday night from um, uh, from the Aragon circuit. Uh, pack it all up, stick it in sh shipping crates. Uh, drive to Barcelona as fast as they can. Jump on the first place to Thailand, a uh, plane to Thailand. Sleep in the plane. Uh, get out of the plane in Bangkok. Then uh, fly, uh, I'm not sure whether they fly or drive to Buriram, uh, and as soon as they get to Buriram, uh, get straight down to work so that, there's, so that we will have TV pictures from Thailand. Um, that, that's, I mean, the, the operational side of, the, of, of, of producing the, the, the broadcast pictures is just phenomenally complicated as it is. I mean, you know, visually, it's a stunning package. It, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's not just a great sport. It's also really well put together and it's beautiful to look at. Um, beautiful to listen to as well. I guess. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, especially Moto and Moto3. They're my, they're my favorite, Neil. 
well, the, uh, the, the, the dulcet tones of uh, Neil Morrison really adds an extra, extra dimension to the, uh, uh, to the small and intermediate class. Um, but this is September. What about, what about April? Uh, well, in, honestly, so, I mean, I tried asking around various people and it, 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 it honestly, the situation changed certainly day by day and almost hour by hour, uh, on, um, Saturday, uh, sort of early, early Saturday, which would be in about sort of lunchtime, normal time. Um, I spoke to someone who sort of tends to know what's going on. And they told me that there would be a decision on Austin by Friday. Uh, uh, well, this Friday, the, what is it, the 13th, I think. Uh, so either Friday the 13th or Monday the 16th, we would definitely have a decision on, uh, on Austin. Um, but also that Argentina was almost certain to, to, to happen. And then on Sunday morning, I spoke to someone else who's also in a position to know about these things. And they told me that um, there could be a decision on Austin on Tuesday. So perhaps by the time you're listening to this, you will already know more than us. But, I mean, even if we sort of knocked this out as quickly as possible and published it within the next hour or two, you would still probably know more than us because things are developing so quickly. Um and also, there's the there's Argentina. Uh, the uh, Argentina just had its first case of, or well, it's had a few cases of of uh, coronavirus. But a passenger flying from Qatar to Buenos Aires was uh, tested was tested for uh, a suspected coronavirus infection. So it, it's it's literally it, it, it's so unstable. What we do know is that um, Dorna really wants to put on races. They're trying to put on as many races as they can. Because in the end, it's a question of money. It's about uh, someone has to pay for this. It's about insurance. Um, it's about um, Dorna is trying to cut their losses. But if they just cancel everything right now, then they lose a lot of money from TV rights. They lose a lot of money from from the uh, uh, from the circuits. Um, whereas if they're forced into it by force majeure, by by an act of uh, an act of God or or an act of nature. <clears throat> Which is what the coronavirus is, uh, then we have no. Then they can they can talk to their insurers, and the insurers will have to pay up. So it's 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 almost impossible to know. I mean, I, my guess. I mean, you can give you you can give your guess in a moment. My guess is that um, I don't think Austin's going to happen. I suspect that Argentina might not happen. Maybe maybe we'll have a race in Sepang uh, before. Um, uh, before we get to Jerez, maybe Jerez happens, but it only happens behind closed doors. Yeah, because this is something that was being discussed at the uh, at the highest level. I mean, they want races to go ahead. In an ideal world, they still want to run twenty rounds. There were twenty rounds. This was to be the longest season uh, in Grand Prix history. Um, even if that meant uh, riding behind closed doors, um, and also there seems to be a willingness that. If rounds are cancelled in March, April, maybe even May, then those rounds can be made up later in the year. Yeah, at least we have a summer break this year, which might make for a little bit more flexibility in uh, moving things around. Uh, the season is supposed to end in uh, Valencia, which is a bit of a shame, really, because Valencia, you are limited. You can, you, I mean, we could probably race perhaps a week later, Maybe two weeks later, but if you you start really 
Um, it gets really, really tricky once you're racing at, at Valencia sort of in the second half of November because uh, not so much during the day. During the day, it's usually fine. But, I mean, I think that... I think we've been staying in places in uh, for for the Valencia round and woken up uh, absolutely uh, freezing with the with frost covering ourselves. I can certainly remember that. Um, so yeah, it, it it's really difficult. Yeah, I was slightly alarmed to hear Carmelo Espoleta, the CEO of Dorna, tell us on a Thursday prior to the uh, pre-event press conference that uh, if it meant racing up until Christmas, then uh, Dorna was completely prepared to do that. And I don't think he was joking. No, he, he definitely isn't joking. He definitely isn't joking. I mean, you could perfectly... Christmas would be a fantastic time to hold a um, uh, to hold a race in Sepang. Uh, it would be a great time to... Or, you know, December would be a great time to be racing in Qatar. Uh, I'd say Philip Island as well, but Philip Island is uh, already scheduled. Um, so there's plenty... There's certainly plenty of options. Um... I mean, in the in the end, what happens because you have to look at Dorna's income. Dorna's income uh, consists of basically of three components. It's uh, the sanctioning fee, which is basically the money which each each circuit pays for the rights to organise a race, which is sort of somewhere between five and eight, nine, ten million, uh, depending on the on the track. Uh, there's the TV rights. <clears throat> And in the TV contract, it says, you know, here's a number of, uh, a given number of races which you can uh, transmit, um, and that I think, uh, the, as I understand it, there that's roughly a, a third of their income. Um, it's also, you know, the most important because it's also it's, it's about long term relationships. So you want to be able to show. Uh, your broadcast partners and potential broadcast partners. Okay, we can, we have a product we can sell you, and there will always be a, a, a product to sell you. And then the other is uh, the the other component is uh, sponsorship deals. Um, don't want to have a lot of par- uh, partners. I mean, BMW is a, is a prime example um, uh, of one of them. Uh, there are s- several others who do lots of backing. You see, you know, you see the signs all around the. Um, uh, all around the circuit, the the, the signs around the, the sponsor signs around the circuit also all belong to Dorna, so that's all income uh, for them as well. Um, and Dorna is going to have to decide: okay, what do we lose if they organise a race behind closed doors? That means uh, the circuit are not going to want to pay either at all or very much for the race because they're not getting any; they can't recoup their income from from sticky sales. Yeah, they'll. Go bankrupt. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, they, you, you can't afford to pay six million and not get any of that, uh, uh, any of that money back from in, in ticket sales, yeah. unless you're the, uh, unless you're Lazale, yeah, know, unless you're unless you're Qatar, yeah, or Razlan Razali at, yeah. uh, at the Sepang International Circuit, and uh, Petronas is uh, yeah. bankrolling a lot of uh, the operations. And yeah, but it, at least at Sepang they get a hundred thousand people come and uh, uh, come and watch, whereas. Uh, you don't get a hundred thousand people come and turn up at uh, uh, in Qatar. So, mm. yeah, yeah. So interesting times. Um, it was pretty strange, I must say. I'm leaving the media center last night and Sunday. Normally, you're saying to your colleagues, "I'll see you in two weeks. I'll see you in such and such a country." Um, but uh, everyone was just kind of shrugging and uh, saying, "Well, see you until." We know a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the flyaways are always a little bit strange because um, uh, not everyone travels to all the flyaways. So it will be 
Um, you'll be saying something like, uh, uh, you know, you going to Austin? Oh, right, not Austin. All right, well, I'll see you in Jerez or I'll see you in Argentina or whatever. Uh, but now it was, I don't know. It's not even It's not even the same as going to the last race where it's, all right, well, you know, I'll see you at the Sepang Test or I'll see you at uh, in Qatar. It's just like... Well, maybe, maybe at some point in the future I will see you, but uh, who knows? Yeah, and I mean, we're two freelancers, Dave, and I'm sure this is a, a common thing around the world at the moment. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, uh, well, yeah, uncertainty when we'll be going to, to work again, and that is, uh, that's a slightly strange feeling. Yeah, I mean... I, Especially I, after a pretty long winter break, as it was. Yes, exactly, because um, if, for example, um, you... You rely for a part of your income on writing race reports for magazines or whatever. Um, you'll have a certain amount of income that you can uh, that, that you can count on because you know that these races are going to happen. You're coming out of the winter where perhaps you've had slightly less work, um, or for example, press releases. You know, uh, the, there's plenty of journalists who make uh, uh, some extra money writing press releases for teams, um, and you're only going to write press releases. If there's a, you know, if there's something to write about, if there's a, if, if, if a race has been on. So all of a sudden, uh, freelancers are looking at uh, a lot less income. Um, the teams have got to start talking to, to their sponsors, you know, all of a sudden that they're, they're, they're lost. And again, it might not necessarily be that this year is going to be particularly bad, um, but it will certainly make people examine the value that they think they're getting from their sponsorship contracts if if these sort of things can can happen yeah yeah i know i'm just speaking to, to some friends and uh, uh, live in spain or live in barcelona uh, the world mobile congress uh, was cancelled there which is usually takes place every february hundreds of thousands of people come all from all over the world um, have friends that work in the tourist industry or hospitality industry and uh, travel agency industry and yeah there's Thousands of euros are suddenly missing from their annual income, and uh, yeah, there's not really a lot of uh, a lot of work to do. So it's a it's a very strange situation. I mean, uh, I'm a man of uh, well, certain age. I'm 32 years old. I certainly haven't experienced anything like this in my lifetime. Exactly. Whereas uh, whereas you, a venerable gentleman of the uh, the world, I, uh, yes, a, uh, a is, more this, mature gentleman in my 50s, shall we say? But this is still a this is still a fairly unique situation to, I, to your lifetime, right? No, ex exactly. I mean. Um, I suppose the last the last thing sort of comparable for me would have been the uh, the oil shock in the mid seventies. But I was I think that was I can't remember if it was seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. Um, must have been sort of seventy four or seventy five. I wasn't really paying much attention to the world. Um, uh, I certainly you know I was eight or nine, so I certainly wasn't driving a car. And uh, needing needing to fill up. Uh, in fact, the funny thing is, that some friends of mine in Holland actually have much clearer memories of it because they stop people from driving on Sundays, and so they close the motorways. And like all of my friends, have memories of cycling and um, uh, and and roller skating on the motorway in the uh, um, uh, on a Sunday. Dutch people having memories of cycling. I can yeah, can't I know. It's, begin to imagine. That. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I mean otherwise. The, I mean, the only other sort of similar things are moments such as uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, where we thought this is uh, 
it'll be um, it'll be sort of you know nukes uh, nukes coming anytime soon. That period of the early eighties was very good for the, which is why this lots of quite good music from there, but it's all quite doomy and gloomy, and uh, we're all going to die. So um, uh, yeah, it and honestly in terms of in terms of sport. It's literally only ever been sort of global conflict, war, that sort of thing, which is... Uh, yeah, in my lifetime, we had yeah, the Mad Car kind of outbreak in 2001. Obviously, that cancelled uh, in road racing circles. That cancelled the Northwest 200, the Isle of Man TT. But uh, I think it was pretty much that was something that was contained within uh, four or five months. And unfortunately, I, I would love to be able to donate blood, and I strongly encourage everyone to donate blood if they can. Um, but living in Holland, and because I was living in the UK during the um, uh, Mad Cow uh, outbreak, which would be in sort of um, uh, early 80s or mid 80s, late 80s perhaps, um, uh, I'm not allowed to donate blood because I, I might have Mad Cow disease. There are. Certainly, people who would question my cognitive abilities, so uh, yes, I can't rule it out. I would need to see a blood sample of yours to uh, <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that that was the case. But anyway, see uh, if my brain was addled. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, okay, well, it was uh, it was well. It's a fairly unique situation for uh, many people around the world. MotoGP is no uh, is no different to that, but. Glad to say that we did actually have a, a Grand Prix that we were just attending there uh, out at the LaSalle International Circuit. It's a pretty weird weekend though, wasn't it? Because uh, let's be frank, there's never such a big attendance at the Qatar GP. Certainly when you look at the grandstands, it's uh, usually fairly fairly empty. Uh, it's not as though you get uh, flight loads of fans coming in from Europe to, to go to this event. However, um, they usually have the, the paddock open. Uh, during the event, and the fact the paddock's usually always full. Uh, yeah, there's, on, there's on usually a couple of hundred. Fun day, yeah, ex day. yeah, exactly. There's usually a couple of hundred people wandering around uh, looking for autographs. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's not like Mugello where it's absolutely rammed, or Misano where you know you, you you just can't move anywhere. But there's usually you know fans around. There's there is some sort of atmosphere, yeah, whereas this was. Yeah, the, the, this was le less atmosphere here than there was at the Sepang test. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I remember coming to the track on Thursday, and it did, you know, it had the, the sort of a vibe of a Moto 2, Moto 3 test. Um, yeah. yeah, it didn't seem like there was a, a Grand Prix, the, the media center and the, the circuit. Uh, half of it was cordoned off because it wasn't needed. Um, there was a much reduced media presence, and uh, obviously, no. MotoGP riders. Uh, only a couple of uh, teams had personnel there that were packing up the crates and getting them ready to freight the boxes off with the bikes to wherever we're going next. Yeah, well, the what's happened to the bikes is that the um, uh, Suzuki, Yamaha, uh, Honda, and Ducati have left their bikes there uh, because, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're basically being stored in the garages uh, because they don't know where to send them to. Um, you know, like we say, we don't know where the next race is going to be, and so Dorna can't really send the send the bikes anywhere. So they are staying there. Uh, KTM were there; they were packing everything up because they are down in Jerez, I think, this week uh, for a test with uh, Aprilia and with um, uh, the Honda test teams, and I think the Suzuki test team, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, but yes, it was it was very strange. It was also strange to come in, and there was sort of one half of the paddock packing up, and the other half of the paddock, um, uh, you know, getting getting ready to go. So it was it was just it was just strange. 
just odd. It's just really, it was just very odd. Very odd indeed. But uh, happy to say that we had two fantastic races on Sunday in the end, and a pretty interesting weekend on the whole. I mean, there was lots of um, lots of surprises, a few real turnips for the books that we weren't expecting. Um, and as I said, two two excellent races. All that was missing was uh, the MotoGP event to go with it at the end of it all. Um, but uh, let's start with uh, with Moto2 because, um, yeah, I think that was, uh, well, a pretty emotional race, pretty emotional result. Uh, one that I personally didn't uh, foresee at all. Um, but, yeah, what a... What a, what a great way to, to open what has been a pretty strange season so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a fantastic race, it was, and it was, a, it was a good, really close uh, Moto2 race uh, all along. Uh, also, it's just really nice. One of the nice things about MotoGP not being here is you get a chance to actually really pay close attention to Moto2 and Moto3 and actually see what's going on because these um, you really see that there are some potential superstars coming along. Um, Moto2, obviously, what Moto2 was conditioned by the lack of MotoGP because uh, we lost um, MotoGP and because of that, they changed they, they changed the schedule. Uh, Moto2 was originally supposed to be running at uh, 4.20. Uh, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> indeed, it was supposed to be running at... Uh, 20 past four. And uh, then, uh, so that got moved up to, to, to six o'clock. But 20 past four is late afternoon, daylight, um, uh, still plenty of track temperature. Uh, 6 p.m. is about 20 minutes after the sun has set. And it's much cooler and you can really feel the humidity arrive. Uh, and that, that had a huge effect on the tyres. Uh, and we spoke to someone from Dunlop and he explained quite, you know, inter- some interesting stuff about that. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, well, Dunlop have a new front tyre for the Model 2 class this year, um, which is more in line with the Triumph 765 engines and uh, essentially bigger bikes um, and more in line with the uh, the rear tyre that they introduced last year uh, at uh, Jerez. Um, so, uh, you know, it really should be more a kind of balanced machine with a similar front tire construction and size to the to the rear tire because last year they were still using the the tires that the front tires that they used in the 600 cc model 2 era um and uh, yet yeah, dunlop brought uh, a super soft and a soft um those tire compounds i think were working pretty well at the test by all accounts um yet uh, when it came to uh, to the race weekend uh, some people just couldn't really Make the uh, super soft, which is the most important, um, the most popular option of the two. Uh, couldn't really make that work, and it was uh, having some pretty bad issues with uh, with wear and tear. Yeah, I was down earlier in uh, in pit lane, and I saw, uh, for example, uh, Jorge Martin come in, and his front tire, the, the right side of his front tire, was completely destroyed, and uh, they moved his. They changed his fork height. They put, pushed the forks through the legs. Normally, when you're making geometry uh, uh, changes on a race weekend, especially on a race weekend after a test, you are it's a, it's literally a millimeter here or a millimeter there. Uh, but I reckon they pushed the uh, the the fork through the legs by at least a centimeter and probably more, uh, which is a really really big change. Um, it didn't work out in the it didn't help in the uh, in the test and also or, uh, during the race and also it was. There there was a few people. We saw Tom Lutie also. Uh, Tom Lutie had a big crash in FP2 
Um, it took a long time for his bike to get put back together again. And then he, he immediately went out and, uh, and had another big crash. So he basically had no data at, uh, at that 6 p.m. time slot, the, 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 the time slot of the race. Um, and I, I think that completely ruined his weekend. Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about um, from the original start time of uh, 4 or 4.20 to 6 p.m. I mean, we're talking a couple of degrees difference, but the humidity could be maybe uh, 15 to 20 percent higher than it would have been uh, in the kind of mid to late afternoon. And that really was uh, one of the things that was uh, catching a number of people out. And um, yeah, I guess that in some ways conditioned the race a little bit because uh, I don't think we got anywhere near the uh, lap record that was set last year by Tom Doody. Um, I think we were around seven tenths of a second off that. Um, and, well, we saw some guys really, really strong at the start of the race and then just plummet down the order, whereas others uh, were starting some way back and managed to go on these explosively at runs that pushed them right towards the front. Yeah, I sort of wonder, uh, be, because you, you saw runners like Joe Roberts, who we'll talk about later because he had a really strong weekend. Um, uh, Joe Roberts went with a safe option, which was the harder option tire. Um, and he had no problems with making the, uh, making the tire loss, but it, it lost a little bit of, uh, of performance. So he was, um, he was strong right from the start. Uh, Luca Marini had the super soft tire and he was really, really strong for the first sort of 14, 15 laps. And then his times literally fell off a cliff. I mean, he was uh, nearly three seconds a lap closer, uh, slower by, by by the end of it. I think he lost something like 10 seconds in five laps, which is an insane amount of money. It literally so, fell off a cliff. Literally. Oh, literally. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've been, yes, yes. Um, there aren't very many cliffs here, but there are a lot of high buildings. So it fell off a high building. <laughs> um but yeah, that was really interesting because uh, Marini looks really strong. Uh, we were talking on Saturday, and, and I think both of us really fancied Marini just because he looked really good. He was looking really confident as well. He looked really comfortable on the bike, um, but the, the 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 tire just went completely away from him, and he and he, and he plummeted down the uh, uh, down there. But you saw that the other uh, some of the other riders we saw like Nagashima who went on to win the race uh, Remy Gardner who lost five or six places and was down in sort of 11th at one point come all the way back again um, it was almost as if being a little bit behind at the start was an advantage because it meant you had to sort of pace your race a little bit more and not uh, and not try and sort of push and make a gap and to use all your front tyre up at the start and again Jorge Martin strong in the first part of the race and then just nowhere in, yeah, the, in, in the second 20th yeah, yeah an absolute uh, disaster really all run from him um but uh tetsuda nagashima now there is a there is a name that uh, i think caught us all off guard um uh, a, a brilliant ride uh, 14th on the grid <coughs> made his way through i think he made uh, his move for the lead two and one move at turn one with uh, three laps to go and then he just didn't look back and this is a guy that hasn't uh, has never even stood in the podium uh, before this weekend never mind win a race um, and he just kind of cleared off and left uh, the guys behind Bastianini, Baldessari, Roberts and then later Remy Gardner to, uh, to kind of fight it out for a second but what a display from uh, from the Japanese rider. Yeah absolutely I mean because once he did get past he was gone I mean he was gone that was I think that was what was sort of impressed me most the fact that he it, you know it, it wasn't just that he sort of you know inched away he opened a gap um and kept it and won comfortably by the answer so it was it, it was it was a genuinely genuinely impressive ride uh, you sort of think okay 
probably he had a little bit of luck, if you want to call it that, um, in the sense that he had um, uh, he was held up at the, at, at the in the early part of the race, and so he could he, had, he was forced to save his front tire a little bit, so he had so much left at the end. Um, but even then, it was just a, a, a fantastic ride. And you know, I, like I said, I was down in that garage quite a lot this weekend, sort of trying to figure it out and have a look. Cause, but I was spending all my time looking at Jorge Martin's side of the garage, and that turned out to be exactly the wrong side. Yeah, I was feeling quite foolish, I must say, on Sunday evening because uh, during the, the commentary through FP1 to FP3, uh, we barely mentioned Nagashima because, like, you know, there were a lot of occasions last year where he was super strong in FP. Uh, sometimes would even qualify very well. Uh, yet you never quite got the impression that he was able to carry that through into a pure race speed. Um, and uh, he was quite strong in a couple of fresh, free practice sessions, but I thought, nah, you know, he's not really been anywhere that uh, significant uh, during during preseason testing. Uh, but completely going under the radar, uh, moving, across, uh, moving across from the, uh, the SAG uh, racing team, which is... Um, one of the, the lesser uh, funded teams, I think we could safely say, in the grid, uh, to Akiayo's um, KTM team, which is, in fact, running Calyx's. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a move to a, a proper team with championship winning pedigree. Came second with Brad Binder, of course, last year. Um, and that, that seems to have made the difference. And uh, just lovely scenes afterwards. Turns out that uh, well, that Nagashima was actually uh, pretty good friends with uh, Shoya Tomizawa, who uh, was victorious at this very race in 2010, the first running of uh, of Moto2 uh, ever, uh, ten years ago. And uh, yeah, some wonderful photographs after the um, after the race itself, when uh, there's a there's a plaque in the, uh, the media center um, of uh, Shoya and a photo of him on the podium holding his uh, trophy aloft on that night in 2010. And uh, well, yeah, Shoya was. Uh, Sorry, Tetsuda was uh, standing next to that photo, looking very emotional. Yeah, I, I, he was emotional. I mean, I was there in 2010. I actually saw that sort of uh, that first Moto Two race, and I have sort of quite vivid memories of uh, uh, Tommy Zawa afterwards being absolutely delighted because I think it was also his first. Uh, uh, it was his, you know, he'd been racing 250s for, for for quite some time, but never been able to actually get much success and this was this demonstrated first of all that you know moto 2 could be a completely open series that it was um it, it really leveled uh, leveled the playing field uh tommy Zawa, it was a great ride that that, uh, that night by tommy zawa and um he was just such a just a delightful person he was you know always sort of cheerful and smiling but also down to earth because we were all right so okay, good. You can do this in your first race. Does this mean you're uh, thinking about the championship? He's going. It's just a race. I just want a race. That's all. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. So he was. Um, um, yeah, it, it it was great, and it was also you know Nagashima is also he has that same sort of um, uh, charm. Really, he's very uh, he, he's a very sort of you know quite a playful, charming sort of a uh, sort of a chap. Doesn't take himself too seriously. Um, and yet, very, very dedicated racer and very, very, um, uh, obviously, very fast, quick enough to win a Moto2 race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think he has, uh, you know, he has a, a couple of kids, three kids, uh, a wife um, who live in Japan. And he, I think, moves across to Europe during the racing season. So, you know, talk about dedication. Yeah. Uh, actually having to, to move away from your family for the most part of the year to uh, dedicate yourself to that. Um, yeah, that in itself, uh, I think, speaks volumes. But um, yeah, great ride by him. Uh, interesting podium as well, because Baldessari was another one that didn't have such a, 
such a strong preseason, looked to be really struggling and out of sorts at Jerez, yet uh, comes to Qatar where he's normally strong. He was great. Um, Bastianini was very impressive as well. Yeah. Um, Roberts was incredible all weekend, I think, yeah, from start I mean, to Robert, finish. Roberts was really impressive. I mean, like that was for me, that was the real breakthrough. That was a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough weekend for Roberts. Uh, we saw a few times, I remember the, uh, I think one of his first races when he rode in Bruno. Yeah, his in, first race. Yeah, his first race. We rode in Bruno and had a fantastic race then, but that was obviously. In the wet. In, yeah, in the wet and weird conditions. Um, and then, uh, you know, moved to NTS and then uh, onto the Calex or the, onto the KTM, sorry. And the KTM, uh, he was also, I think, on one of the, on the older KTM chassis. And uh, the KTM chassis was um, uh, a bit of a uh, pig. Yeah, uh, yes, a bit, a bit of a, a, a bit of a pig. Only a lot more uh, rigid. Um, so that was that was obviously a difficult year. This, obviously, this bike suits him a lot better. Um, and he was just really impressive all weekend. You know, fastest on Friday, breaking the lap record. Uh, equal fastest with Marini are uh, in qualifying, and again a lap record and he just looked really really competitive all, all all throughout the race really yeah exactly um and he was quite open about how he was feeling before the race he said before qualifying it was never been as nervous in his life and uh, even before the race you know he was barely able to sleep the night before and uh, was really really nervous uh starting from pole position but i thought he held, handled himself like a pro um i was part of me was thinking you know, could we see him maybe succumb to the pressure? Because, I mean, his best result before this weekend was a 10th place. Um, for him to be battling in the podium places, um, you know, was a big ask, considering his uh, his previous. Um, but, um, yeah, made a, a few small mistakes. He was obviously one of the guys that went with the, the harder front tire. I think there was only five of them. Um, and he said that that was costing him a little bit through... Uh, through left-hand corners, um, but despite that, he you know he didn't do anything stupid, and he was right in the fight for the podium until the very end. Yeah, I mean, if you make a mistake, if you are sort of riding above yourself or not really confident in your own abilities, then when you make a mistake, you'll see people make a mistake and then try and overcompensate and end up just going backwards. Whereas Roberts, when he when he did make small mistakes, he could correct it and be straight back again. He was. Um, it was a very, very confident. Uh, it was very, very confident ride. And I, uh, I mean, you spoke to him. Um, uh, I only listened to the audio of you speaking to uh, Joe, and uh, you were asking him, um, "So, are you pleased with that?" And he's saying, "Of course, I'm not pleased with that. I was supposed to win," which is exactly the attitude you want from a from a motorcycle racer. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, one in the eye for the stupid journalist asking <laughs> the, uh, the dozy questions. Yeah, but it's our it's our job. Our job is to ask the stupidest possible questions to make <laughs> the uh, to allow the r- r- riders to make uh, to give us really good answers. Yeah, and he certainly did. He certainly gave us some fantastic answers. Uh, Nagashima, I mean, um, has been on the cusp of uh, a really good Grand Prix result for a while. <clears throat> we know Baldassare is great at Qatar. Uh, Bastianini has proven Grand Prix pedigree, but but Roberts and that American racing team not so much. Um, what has what has allowed them to uh, to do a weekend like this? I mean, you just mentioned the uh, the Calex chassis. Obviously, that's played a big part as well. But there's a few other factors at work there. Yeah, there is the John Hopkins factor, um, a former 500 cc racer, and um, again, teenage prodigy really. Um, uh, John Hopkins came into Grand Prix, raced with um, uh, first Yamaha and then Suzuki, 
Um, managed to bang himself up a, a, a fair bit and ended up uh, uh, um, being forced to retire. Still, my favourite, uh, one of my favourite um, Grand Prix memories is um, uh, John Hopkins kicking the uh, kicking the Suzuki at at Qatar after I think it had gone pop for the second time uh, the second time in two days. Um, but Hopkins has come in as a as, uh, as a rider coach and um, as a mentor and he's been really really good for uh, Roberts been able to help him understand uh, give him confidence understand how to handle a race weekend understand how to handle uh, uh, the bike better the whole situation better um, and they, the 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 two seem to get on as well you know they they seem to because when we went in for the uh, for for the debrief on I. Th- think Friday. yeah on friday night there was the two of them and they were sort of you know bouncing uh bouncing answers off each off, off one another like uh, you know like an established uh, like an established duo sort of thing so it was um yeah you can really see there's there's some real chemistry that, that that's helped and hopefully it will um this kind of success will help them find a bit more sponsorship uh to Make the you know strengthen the strengthen the team uh, all around. I think also he mentioned his crew chief. Um, uh, the, the the change of crew chief has been really good for him. Uh, he now has a crew chief that he feels understand them, and that of course that 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 communication is so important. Yeah, Lucio Nicastro, who was previously with uh, Jazz Davies and uh, Sam Lowe's in there, uh, successful years in World Super Sport. Um, and, uh, you know, speaks a really good level of English, whereas I think Joe said last year uh, communication with his uh, crew chief was a real issue, um, just not being able to quite understand each other, be on the same wavelength. Um, heard something interesting as well that, uh, you know, Joe's one of the taller guys. I think he's uh, 180 centimetres tall. Yeah, she's uh, a fraction under six foot. Yeah, which is pretty tall for a Moto2 rider. Yeah. Um, and uh, basically the team went uh, to a wind tunnel over the winter and uh, basically not just like worked on the... Um, well, worked on his body position um, and how he should uh, how he should position himself perfectly uh, on the straights, and that seems to have made a difference. So, lots of different little details I think have uh, contributed to that um, to that result. Um, however, now I'm you know I'm delighted to to see these names up because it's it's added a, a bit of variety, a bit of spice to the Moto Two Championship. But I can't escape the feeling that this maybe was not the uh, the complete picture. I mean, I would not be surprised if at the next GP we, we see a whole host of different names up at the front. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel that uh, a lot of the results in this race was down to the change in race time. That had a huge effect on uh, tyres and it was... I mean, it's not luck of the draw that, you know, who got it right and who didn't, uh, but it was, it, it, it threw, you know, it's a proper, it threw a real sort of wild card, a real joker into into the pack and uh, mixed things up a, lo- a lot. That doesn't mean that I don't think we'll see Nagashima, uh, Roberts um, uh, at the front in the next few races, but I think we will see them at the front in the next few races with Jorge Martin, uh, with um, um, Marini, but yeah, yeah, with Marini, uh, you know, with with the Luti rest, of, yeah, Fernandez, exactly. yeah, 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 Luti Fernandez, all the all the other people that we've been that we've really been expecting. So, um, yeah, this was it, this is a, a little bit of an oddity. I think the new names are here to stay, but I think um, 
the fact that some of the established names sort of really, uh, really messed up and didn't didn't appear at the front made uh, sort of allow allowed them to shine a little bit brighter. Yeah, yeah. In the uh, the Honda <laughs> six hundred era of Model Two, um, I think Qatar was a, a pretty good gauge for who would be at the front of the championship. Um, I think of the nine races there were from uh, from two thousand and ten until two thousand and eighteen. Um, I think um, eight of the winners, seven, uh, I think seven, seven of the winners yeah. in Qatar went on to win the, the Moto2 championship. But then you just have to look at last year's Moto2 race, the first race with the Triumph 765 engine and Baldessari obviously won that and ended up being nowhere in the championship. And Alex Marquez, I think, was seventh yeah. um, in that uh, in that race, that particular race. Uh, Brad Bender, I think, was 12th yeah. uh, and ended up being second in the championship. Uh, yes. the, the only rider who was really consistent was Luti. I think Luti finished second. Yeah, Luti finished second and he finished third in the championship. Uh, but, you know, Luti is a really, really experienced uh, uh, guy. So uh, he has a lot of uh, a lot of things to fall back on. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think this is going to be a guide. Uh, I don't think you can draw any conclusions from the championship. Uh, but um, I think you did see sort of, you know, who was, who was strong. Um, uh, because even the riders, I mean, like Marini, I think is a perfect example. Uh, he led the race for 14 laps. Uh, until his tires went away, and then it was, and then it was done. Um, clearly, Luti has got, what, or sorry, Marini has got what he, what what it takes. He, he's clearly fast, uh, and if it hadn't been for the tire situation, I think it would have been uh, it, it, the, the result might have been different. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the the guys who beat Marini, the guys who didn't mess their tires up, they're going to be there as well. Yeah. Marini's fast, and as he told us on uh, Friday, David, he's fully fit as well. That was uh, something that kind of passed my mind when I was doing my preseason notes. I had uh, I kind of forgot that he had had those uh, really significant shoulder issues uh, for the best part of two seasons, yeah. and uh, now he's you know now he's functioning fully fit and uh, able to ride the bike in in the kind of correct way. Um, so yeah, I would still say going forward, Marini's my my uh, my championship uh, shot, um, but. Uh, I really think this year there could be as many as nine race winners in yep. Moto2, maybe 14 or 15 podium um, guys on the podium because it really is a, a wide open category. We saw it, I mean, we saw at the Qatar test the, just how close everything was. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, there was a lot of times which were really close. There wasn't a lot, of, a lot to choose in some of the practices either. So, yeah, the, really the gap the, the gap in performance is not going to be uh, it's not going to be big. And this is really going to produce better better uh, MotoGP races eventually because these guys are having to find something extra to make the difference. Yeah, for sure. So uh, pretty exciting times in Model 2 this year, 2020, uh, the second year of the Triumph Engines and a pretty exciting Model 3 race. I think that's uh, the understatement of the year so far. Um, it was a, a typical, fast, frenetic, uh, wild Model 3 encounter with a league group of uh, what, 16 riders um, at the end of the race. Um, and uh, we had the first KTM winner since 2014, since Jack Miller uh, at Qatar. It's uh, historically a bit of a Honda track, but um, in the end, we had a, a bit of a face-off between uh, KTM's Albert Arenas and uh, Honda's John McPhee, uh, and it was, uh, yeah, an- another another great race. We were always getting great races in uh, in Qatar. I was going back through the records. The biggest winning margin in Model 3 in the past six Ardennes if you include this year, was uh, 0.135 seconds, <laughs> uh, which was uh, Joanne Mir in 2017. 
so yes, uh, it's kind of like uh, the sun coming up or uh, yeah. having to fill out your tax forms once every three months. It's just one of those things you take as a as a given. Moto three racing being very close in Qatar. Yeah, if you talk to some team managers, they one of the things they don't like about Moto three is how sometimes. Um, it doesn't reward riders who work on race pace. It rewards riders, riders being either incredibly brave or incredibly stupid um, uh, at the very end of the race. Because if you can just hang with the front group, you can try and do something insane in the last corner to get uh, to get the right to find the right position and get the right uh, toe. But this one didn't feel like it because you saw Alberto Arenas led, I think, thirteen laps. Um, uh, he was he, he read for all he, he led for almost all the race. Um, he looked really really comfortable in control. Uh, John McPhee, uh, I sp- spoke to um, uh, Johan Stegerfeld, the team manager, um, just before or well uh, during the race. I interviewed him for Dutch Eurosport, and he said, you know, we had a plan. The plan was that um, John s- sits and waits for the first you know, sort of 14, 15 laps uh, and make sure he doesn't get caught behind a break and then start, tries to push on. And like both of their strategies, Arenas' strategy came off. Um, uh, McPhee's strategy uh, uh, nearly came off. Uh, Darren Binder, again, Darren Binder had a fantastic race, was also looked really, really strong throughout, was very unfortunate to get uh, sort of uh, uh, bumped off by um, uh, Arbolino. Racing incident, you know, it, just, it was just two bikes happened to be at the same point in uh, uh, of the track at the same time, and uh, Darren came off, uh, came off worse. But um, it was... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was a, an exciting race, but with a uh, with the win, second place, completely earned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were both very impressive in their own rights, and uh, well, you've really covered it all there, David. I mean, Arenas leading from the front looked extremely quite comfortable. I think he got uh, nerfed at uh, turn one by Tatsuki Suzuki with around the. Uh, Four laps to go, that pushed him back to seventh. Um, but within uh, two laps, he was back at the front and, uh, you know, did not get uh, irked or upset by that. And, uh, yeah, as you say, McPhee, uh, I was slightly worried uh, by McPhee's uh, early early pace because he, he dropped on from, uh, what was it, ninth in the grid. He was, I think, 12th, 13th in the opening laps. And, um, you know, John was always in the winning fight from Le Mans last year, but uh, there were several races where when it got to the last five or six laps, how he positioned himself in the lead group maybe wasn't always up to the required standard if you want to be winning races every every couple of weeks. Um, but I was really impressed with how John always seemed to be in the right place at the right time in the final couple of laps. And indeed, his strategy up until actually in the final corner seemed to be perfect because you don't normally want to be leading out of the final corner. Uh, in Qatar, yeah, exactly. I mean, he was. Uh, if, if there is, a, if there is a criticism, is that he was just a little bit too far behind uh, Arenas to be able to make the pass uh, before the line because he got past Arenas, but you know, about 150 meters too late, and um, unfortunately, they don't count that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as you say, strategy was perfect, or it was almost perfect. It was really, it was it was nearly there. Um, but a really strong it was a really strong race for him and a really strong result for him uh, and also a really strong result for the uh, uh, for Arenas and, and the KTM because the KTMs at the test looked to be a bit slow but KTM bought a new engine yeah exactly um, I think they bought that new engine to the test but uh, they didn't want to uh, introduce it too early and I think it was maybe only in the final day 
uh, that some teams uh, got it. And then other teams like Darren Bindu's CIP KTM squad, for example, the first time that they had the new engine was on uh, Friday, uh, well, early afternoon for FP1. Um, so, yeah, Honda is more or less the exact same bike as 2019 in Model 3, different gearbox. And even that is the gearbox more or less from 2018 because they're having some issues with the gearbox last year. So uh, it's a tried and trusted package and it's, it's you know, the base setting I think that McPhee was working with at the end of last year has carried right the way through the winter or through the winter testing. Um, and that's why he, he's so, he's so, uh, he's been so consistent, so comfortable and so confident. Um, whereas KTM obviously have a, a completely new chassis, uh, and a new engine, which judging by the final corner, uh, looks to be a big step up because Honda definitely had the upper hand last year. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting also seeing the different natures of the bikes because they are, even though we've only got two manufacturers in, in Moto3, it still produces interesting races because the bikes are so different in sort of, sort of in their concepts the the honda is a really sweet handling bike um it's got lots of top it's got lots of top end so it, you know it, it's fast enough um but it you you sort of carry corner speed you need to carry corner speed and then sort of get out of the corner whereas the ktm seems to be sort of much harsher and more aggressive so the, it's got the top uh, it's got the top end but it uh, it doesn't have sort of a, a smooth drive you really have to be much more aggressive with the uh, with, with the whole bike so it's um uh it's good you know we're going to come to tracks where it's really going to suit the ktm and tracks where it's really going to suit the honda um so it should make for a good uh, for for a good balanced championship yeah, we saw a record-breaking 12 different riders win races in Moto3 in 2019. 12 different riders on pole position as well. Uh, can we see something similar this year? Will we have as much variety, or do you expect to see one or two guys clean up? Well, I was going to say, it depends whether we have 12 races or not, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> Coming back to where we started from. Um, yeah, because there seems to be, I mean, there, there, there seems to be quite a lot of depth Um Hushama uh, Masia seems to be better. Uh, Tatsuku, uh, Tatsuki, sorry, Tatsuki Suzuki. This is your spe- speciality, Neil. Not uh, not so much mine, but um, Tatsuki Suzuki looked really, really good all weekend. Um, the, there's genuinely a bunch of riders. Uh, Darren Binder, like I was really, I really was impressed with with Darren Binder he because was smooth. He was, yeah, he was really smooth. He was yeah, relaxed. And, yeah, and, and previously he's always been. Um, uh, a little bit over the edge and he didn't look over the edge at all he was aggressive right up to the line where aggressive stops and and uh, and dangerous starts which is exactly where you need to be as a motorcycle racer so he's made a really he's made a really really big step forward and he also seems to have a lot more confidence a lot of, you know he's a lot calmer uh, sometimes you can see it's always interesting watching races because they come in as genuinely boys you know 16 when you're 16 i mean i know what i was like when i was 16 and um uh, it was not the most sensible chap in the entire universe it wasn't pretty it was not oh it was very pretty but uh but uh, not intellectually not not uh, not uh, not uh, intellectually and emotionally particularly stable um uh, so you see these kids come in at 16 and you know 17 18 you see them grow through a period where they start to get the maturity and and, and sort of wise up to or wise up to bits and pieces and uh, one of my fascinating aspects of the sport really is just seeing how they develop as as humans absolutely yeah for sure um so, uh, yeah, great uh, Moto3 race. Um, put you on the spot. Why not? Who's going to win the Moto3 title this year? Goodness. 
Uh, who's going? I mean, there was a lot of Arbelino was really good. Suzuki was really good. Uh, Agura was really good. Um, I uh, McPhee was really good. Um, uh, Could you I'm going to say Albert Arenas just because the way that he controlled that race was outstanding. He he really, I mean, he had that race in his pocket, and when he did get bumped back a little bit, he didn't lose his cool. He just made, made his way back to the front again uh, and won. Now I don't know. I mean, you know, we've in theory we've still got a lot of racing ahead of us. Uh, so yeah, we shall have, we we shall have to wait and see. But the, um, our rate, you, I mean, if you could, you know. I wouldn't put me bet me house on Albert Arenas, but I might put a tenner on it. Right, which for you is quite a lot. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So good job, Albert. Uh, yeah, you've gained uh, David's trust for the year ahead. So that brings us to the final stage of our show. This is uh, the winners and losers section, um, as always. And, uh, well, we've got quite a big selection of winners and losers from the, uh, the first race of uh, the first races of 2020. Uh, David, big winner from Qatar. Um, I am going to go with the bleeding obvious if that's all right with you i'm going to go with uh, joe roberts because he uh, smashed it as they say uh he really established himself um i mean you can be fastest you can top timing you know you, you can top the timesheets in testing you can top the timesheets in a session and just be a flash in the pan. But Joe Roberts did not look like a flash in the pan. He looked, um, he was calm, he was fast, he was consistent. Uh, he had a really good race. Um, he has a legitimate excuse for not winning, not winning the race or not being on the podium. Um, in as, insofar as there are legitimate excuses. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I think he had a, he just had a really, really good weekend and now, Everyone knows his name. It's just, uh, it's just a shame that he does it now with the coronavirus, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and and the chances of of Cota being of Austin being being cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what a time this would have been for a young hopeful American doing really well in Grand Prix racing to go to to his home Grand Prix. I'm sure that would have attracted uh, you know a whole new following. Uh, to uh, and it's what it's what uh, it's what Donna have been crying out for for years because yeah. there's nothing like a home race. I mean, I saw it obviously working for Dutch Eurosport. Uh, Bo Bensnyder had a really good weekend as well. Um, uh, surprisingly, um, he qualified in fifth, which was just really superb. Also, the best qualifying uh, position for the NTS chassis. NTS chassis has made a big uh, step forward as well. Um, uh, finished the race in eleventh, um, but honestly, eleventh is pretty much where he deserved. And in last year. He was struggling to score points. You know, he was he was yeah, generally sort of around twentieth position, which is just not good enough. Whereas eleventh is a solid basis to uh, to to build on. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And uh, how did we get on the bench, Nader? Exactly. Uh, we <laughs> 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 Who doesn't want to talk about bad boy Bo? Okay, right. Fair enough. Fair enough. We were, yeah. So is he your winner? Or is Joe Roberts your winner? Uh, Joe Roberts is ah, definitely my Roberts. winner. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. But a. Uh, a supporting role for uh, for Bo. <laughs> That's right. He's a winner. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Bo Ben Snyder, winner at life. Okay, right. Fantastic. But what about you? Uh, well, I'm going to go with uh, Tetsu Nagashima because, uh, well, why not? Uh, <laughs> first Grand Prix podium, first Grand Prix win. 
to do it with uh, such panache and controlled aggression, ride through the field from 14th on the grid, and just the, uh, the kind of the show of emotion afterwards and the, the dedication to his uh, his old friend Shoya Tomazawa, uh, who sadly passed away in 2010, and who won that race back in uh, well in the same year in Qatar, and there, there was some. You know, kind of striking, I thought, similarities to the to the two races and how they played out. Um, so yeah, Tetsu gets my nod for sure. Yeah, I mean, a good shout. You can't argue with the race winner, really, because uh, and especially when he when he wins it so convincingly. Like I said, you know, those last few laps, he just owned that race. He took control and he got away, uh, and that wasn't sort of you know uh, nicking it in the last corner. That was a proper full on victory. That was. It was. It was indeed. Uh, your loser. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Tom Lutie because Lutie, that crash in FP2 uh, cost him a lot. It really, it cost him qualifying. Um, it cost him because I think he was he was in Q, because he didn't go to Q1 either, did he? He was already in Q2 and, so, and he ended up on, didn't really have a time to, to get a proper setup. Um uh, couldn't get the couldn't get the tire to work. Couldn't get the whole. It just it was just a, a miserable weekend for him, uh, and it's a really bad start when in in such a competitive class. Obviously, hopefully, it's going to be a long season in theory. Uh, so he's got plenty of time to, um, or he should have plenty of time to, to to try and get it back. But it's not the way that you want to uh, kick off the season, really, when there are so many. Uh, young and really impressive um, uh, riders around, and it's like Luca Marini, for example, who was fantastic for for, for the first fifteen laps and then disappeared. Uh, Luti was just miserable all weekend, really. Yeah, yeah, it was a tough, uh, a tough time, a pretty sobering experience for Tom. Looked like a world beater at the Hereth test, but um, struggled at the Qatar test. And uh, aside from setting the quickest time in FP one. Uh, yeah, really struggled to get on with the uh, guitar circuit as well all weekend. Uh, I think I'll have to go with, um, I was going to say Roman Alfinati because he was just anonymous really. Yeah, um, yeah moved across to the uh, the Max Racing uh, Husqvarna team in Model 3 and um, yeah, it's just, uh, but but the, th- the thing is it's not really a surprise anymore, you know, because well, Fanati last year when he came back, he was, uh, you know, so much faster than the other guys in testing, and then he, he was pretty rubbish in the racing. And this year, it hasn't even been those flashes in testing. It's been uh, he's been well off the pace. But the fact that it's not a surprise um, means that I'm going to go for someone else. I think I'll go for uh, Acosta Fernandez because uh, he was, um, yeah, he had a pretty pretty tough uh, tough weekend. Um, and uh, obviously, I tipped him for the championship when I was uh, commentating on Friday, so I've given him the, uh, the proverbial <laughs> kiss of death. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a pretty lackluster qualifying session for him. I think he qualified twelfth, uh, had a bad start. He was down in seventeenth and was trying to pass Stefano Manzi, uh, crashed into the back of him, and then uh, basically uh, said afterwards that uh, yeah, Manzi ran into me, which uh, wasn't quite the truth. <laughs> I don't think there was uh, some element of delusion there. Um, but yes, I think that uh, Augusto Fernandez, uh, yeah, has a lot riding on this year because you know he was signed up with uh, Ponza's Cedar Ponza's Model Two team. Ponza had pretty much taken him from uh, the Spanish Championship after Hector Barra got sacked in 2018, um, and uh, basically 
you know, brought him into Grand Prix racing and established him as a as a real force. And he had actually signed for this year with Pons and uh, had done the first test with him at the end of last year before Mark VDS basically came and uh, said, "Hey, we'll buy you out of your contract." Um, so uh, yeah, he's a lot riding on this year, and it just hasn't quite really come together at the moment. Um, no, because he hasn't looked strong at all, really. Even mm. during testing, he hasn't really it hasn't really gelled for him. Uh, and last year, he looked phenomenal. Mm. Uh, so it's it's really it's a real surprise for, for for him to struggle. So yeah, that is absolutely absolutely a good shout. And you mentioned Romano Fanati. That's one of these another one of these personality things because Fanati has been staying in the same hotel as us. And every morning when I've gone down to breakfast, Fanati's been there and he's sat completely on his own. Um, even uh, I, I think it's Jürgen Ling, the, uh, the the team coordinator, was sitting. Peter Ertl. Pe- ah, is it Peter Ertl? Yes, it's Peter Ertl. Uh, Peter Ertl was sitting there um, in a um, wearing the same team clothes on the table right next to him. Um, you know, these two pe- two person tables, and they were completely ignoring each other. So Fanati is quite clearly uh, not in a good place. He didn't look at all. Uh, Pumped up and fired up about the about the twenty twenty season, uh, as you say, it was just completely and completely anonymous. I, I do wonder how much of it is the bike, you know, because uh, he's ridden Hondas before and now he's on the K on the oh, well the Husqvarna, which is at the at the moment it's just a rebadged KTM, uh, but it does make you wonder. Yeah, maybe that plays a bit of a role. Uh, but yeah, he's just, he's he's not in a good place at all. Yeah, yeah. Motivation, you have to say, is probably well. Yeah, we don't we don't know for sure, but uh, that was a, a bit of an issue last year. Yeah, and I think. Uh, how much does he? How much does he want it? That is a really good question. That is a really good question because it's really difficult. He doesn't look like. Um, he doesn't seem to have the fire in his eyes, which is sort of strange for someone who did have that when he was younger but again we all grow up and our our, our goals and motivations change and uh, and you don't know um actually i, I would like to uh, put forward another uh, biggest loser and that would be well us really everyone everyone interested in motorcycle racing um the world because of What's happening with the with the with the virus and us not knowing what's going to um, go on? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, motorcycle racing is uh, pretty uh, pretty far down on the on the list of priorities. But um, uh, it's not just a, you know, no matter what you're interested in. I mean, even if you love the theatre, you're not going to be able to go to the theatre. Uh, you know, even libraries might be dangerous places. Football matches, cricket matches, whatever. Um, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a difficult time. Absolutely. Yes, yes. How am I supposed to compete with that when you choose the world <laughs> for your biggest loser? You see, this is what happens when you grow up in the 1980s. You just see, you know, the bigger the bigger picture of doom, gloom, <laughs> destruction, you know, impending apocalypse. Yes, yes. Child of the Cold War. <laughs> yes. Make no mistake. Okay, well, uh, thank you. On that cheery note, David, uh, <laughs> let's uh, end this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, Kind of sad to say that we don't really know when we'll next be coming to you, dear listener, uh, because of the uh, the strange situation. I mean, as it's probably worth reiterating that uh, there's no uh, there's no Thai Grand Prix uh, this month, and uh, I would say it's probably ninety percent sure that there's not going to be an Austin GP uh, at the start of April. Would that be fair? That's uh, yeah, that's probably fair. But the thing is, um, you know, in a week's time. Uh, 
a trillion things will have happened. So I think we can find something to talk about in terms of motorbikes. So uh, and we've still got we've got so we've got some sort of interesting background stories to talk about. So uh, we shall have to uh, we shall have to dip into our um, off season big bag of off season stories to do uh, to to have a chat about. But um, it's going to be a while. Certainly going to be a while before we can uh, um, go through our winners and losers of the race. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, keep posted. As David said, we have uh, some uh, content stored up from the off-season that we'll probably be putting out in the coming weeks. Um, thank you again, dear listener, as always, for uh, your uh, your your continued support and uh, listening to this, uh, the uh, best motorcycle racing podcast going around. And, uh, yep, good time as any to remind you that we have a Patreon page that's uh, patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast for as little as $3 a month you can find uh, some wonderful extra features uh, including uh, well thoughts from us uh, during a race weekend you can hear uh, exclusive interviews and debriefs and even sometimes exclusive shows uh, Steve English and I did a, a Moto 2 and Moto 3 preview which is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers and that went up uh, just before uh, last weekend um also follow us on our social media channels. That is uh, Twitter at Pod, Facebook.com forward slash podcast, And uh, however you find your podcast, be sure to try and uh, leave us a review there. Give us, uh, give us uh, a rating as well and that helps other users and listeners find our show. So thank you again, dear listener, for listening to this edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Winners and losers. Okay. Uh, Brian, our dear friend, if you could just uh, cut out this little interlude of us trying to get our shit together. <laughs>